Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, there was also big news as a much-anticipated report from the New York State Attorney General Letitia James found that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women, nine of whom were current or former state employees, and one who was a New York State trooper assigned to his security detail. The report found that he made inappropriate comments to women and unwanted touching, groping, and kissing. In one case, Cuomo and his office even retaliated against a woman who spoke out about how she was treated by the governor. Calls have intensified for him to resign, but Cuomo has remained defiant and refuses to step down. President Biden this week also called for him to step down. For more on what's in this report, we'll speak to Tom Winter, investigations correspondent at NBC News. I think this report, given the two people that led the investigation, and I'm referring to June Kim and Ann Carr, June, a a former acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, well-respected federal prosecutor, somebody who's got... uh, quite a history uh, as, a, uh, as an investigator. And, uh, and Ann Clark, who's a very respected sexual harassment attorney, somebody with real subject knowledge matter in this space, somebody who's um, uh, completely dialed into these issues, used to speaking with women, knows what to talk about and what questions to ask them, produced a report today uh, that is filled with details. What, what we expected that What we didn't expect is 11 accusers. What we didn't expect is that uh, somebody who was involved, who was a doctor, um, who participated in a press conference with the governor, um, and she performed a live COVID-19 swab on the governor, uh, apparently uh, said afterwards, made a a joke of of an implied sexual nature, according to the report, and uh, and then told her, nice to see you, doctor, you make that gown look good. So this just kind of lays out kind of a, a pattern in practice from the governor. I think one of the most troubling allegations here today uh, is the one that's raised by a New York state trooper on his protective detail. That involves unwanted touching. That's corroborated by other New York state troopers. Uh, it sure feels like a investigation that unveiled, according to the report, quite a pattern in practice of unwanted comments, touching kissing or all three of those. And on top of that, apparently really a toxic environment in an environment where retaliation was kind of par for the course. So it's definitely a tough report for the governor today. Yeah. And even creating that toxic work environment is against the law there in New York. I mean, if you're not reporting or investigating certain things that people have brought up, you know, you could be charged for that, Uh, which leads me to the next part in going through the report and seeing what's going on. The attorney general there said that she wasn't going to press any charges on him. They let, She left it open. She said these are civil matters, so other people could bring lawsuits, but uh, she wasn't going to be doing it at that time. That's correct. So the attorney general was not going to be bringing uh, forward uh, criminal charges here. But as Ian Clark said when she spoke at the press conference, look, there's nothing that precludes a police department or a district attorney uh, from going through all of this and, and asking for the information and uh, developing their own investigation just based on what you and I and a whole host of other people have read here today. And as a matter of fact, it appears that's what's happened. 
In Albany, there's a ongoing criminal investigation by the county district attorney there. And so I think that's something that we're going to watch. They've put out a, a statement uh, today uh, discussing it uh, and saying, look, this is an investigation that we are we are going to look into. This is something that we've paid attention to. And so that's kind of where I think this is going to be going. And I think it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see where this goes from a criminal standpoint. Federally, it's more of a civil issue has more to do with uh, civil rights charges as it relates to sexual harassment. Uh, We'll have to see what happens next. But at this point, this feels far from over. And that's before you get to the whole impeachment and political side of this. Right. Pretty soon after the attorney general was speaking, Governor Cuomo came out in a video message, a prepared statement, and he defended himself. Obviously, he's been saying that he never really did anything to begin with. And he said, I might have made people uncomfortable, but, you know, I never harassed people. Well, that's right. I mean, he came out with this press conference that was uh, very slickly produced. Uh, it, include, uh, it included a number of pictures of the governor kissing and, and uh, hugging other people. He's put out in his 85-page response, 26 pages of which come from his attorney, another 26 pages of just him embracing and, and uh, uh, kissing or touching other politicians. He also includes pictures that are wholly unrelated to him photos of, say, the president and vice president embracing. I think what makes this different is the picture that was at one point featured on the front page of the New York Times uh, involving one of the women who's referred to in this report. Um, the, the governor didn't know this woman in advance of uh, him meeting her. And at one point, he puts his hand on both sides, his hands on both sides of her cheek and says, may I kiss you? And the woman's uh, look on her face is a pure horror. Right. So I think. And he chalks, you, it, he chalks you, it up to it's an Italian thing. This is what we do kind of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I know a lot of Italians, and, and the first thing they do when they you know see me is not just walk up and grab my cheeks <laughs> and kiss me. So right. I think that's going to be. That's going to be a challenge for the governor here to really explain this behavior. Um, and I think that, you know, what we've just discussed really underlines his challenge here. And will the voters and the people of New York State buy that? Um, that's not up to me to decide as a reporter, but it is something that I think is is really going to be an issue going forward. As you mentioned, the investigators said that there was a pattern of behavior from the governor. If we could, if we can go through two more examples, I wanted to talk about executive assistant one, which Seems to be pretty bad. And then also another one where uh, Lindsay Boylan, who said that she was retaliated against when she came forward with her, with her story. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. I mean, I think both of those instances are, are, are really, really powerful. And, and I think the retaliation, this idea, and, and, and this was reported about, but, uh, but didn't receive maybe the attention that it deserved at the time, is that they were circulating uh, an op-ed that would have gone out and attacked the claims made by this person. Um, they would have uh, uh, they would looked for her file, try to get her full file to determine uh, what she had done or what was in her background. I mean, th- these are th- those are pretty strong allegations uh, as far as retaliation, and I think that's an area where legally the governor could face some some trouble. Uh, perhaps other people in his in his administration as this criminal review is underway. So, you know, one of the things that everybody focused on when the attorney general was tasked with this report, and let's forget, let's not forget who tasked the attorney general with doing this. It, it, was, it was, in fact, the governor. Yeah, <laughs> right. it was the governor himself. Right. And they called for this independent review and said that they welcomed it and welcomed a final report. A final report is not in this by law. Uh, as a matter of fact, each week, <laughs> normally, 
uh, the attorney general would have to issue a weekly report to the governor. Now, in this case, they said, well, the governor's conduct himself is being looked at. So just skip all that and give us a public report at the end. That's how we got to today. Uh, But when you look at where this goes from here, one of the big questions was what other activity would they find when they started looking into these allegations? And then would they find that people in the governor's office did the wrong thing as it pertains to New York state law, some of which Andrew Cuomo signed himself in reporting this and and doing the right thing as an employer. And so I think when you look at this investigation going forward on the criminal side, that'll be an interesting place to see if there's any sort of criminal violation of state law. And of course, civil uh, suits that may be brought by some of the women here. Some of those cases, according to legal analysts we've spoken to, appear to be quite strong. Last thing on all of this, you mentioned the political aspect of this. Obviously, he's denying it. He's refusing to resign. The calls have intensified for him to resign. What do Democrats do out there? And even uh, President Biden, he had previously been asked, you know, should Governor Cuomo resign if the report comes out and it shows that he sexually harassed women? President Biden said yes already. So there's going to be a ton of pressure coming out on him. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're the governor, you have to wonder what are you going to do going forward? What's the mandate going forward? You know, previously he was able to kind of punt this down the line and said, look, let the attorney general do their work. Let these independent investigators do their work. I'm going to stay out of it. They should look at it. Then he started attacking the investigation, going after June Kim, uh, saying that he was biased. Now, June Kim did not bring charges against one of his former top deputies. That was another U.S. attorney, Preet Bharara. And while June Kim may have worked on the case, at the end of the day, a jury decided that that top deputy was guilty. So it's unclear where the bias comes from. It's not as if a case went bad or something bad happened. So you have the governor whose attacks here haven't really seemed to have landed. What's his mandate going forward after questions were raised, how he handled nursing home deaths? Some of that criticism appears to be warranted. And what's next for him? I mean, if the legislature doesn't want to work with him, if he's got Congress, all the congressional delegates from New York essentially saying he should resign, we don't want to work with him. What does that mean for the state? What does that mean for his constituents? So I think this raises a lot of questions about his ability to be effective going forward. It's very clear, as you suggested, in the way the governor uh, responded in his press conference and his report that he's issued today, uh, he shows no immediate signs of backing down. Uh, it does not appear to be on his heels, but I think going forward, um, well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see where all this goes. Tom Winter, investigations correspondent at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You got it. Finally, for this week, a fun story about booze and spirits. Spirits are currently going through a revolution where distillers are using new methods and applying them to classic and unfamiliar ingredients. Think of things like marigolds, pasilla peppers, coffee fruits, and more. The trend is toward bigger flavors, weird fermentations, and more sustainability. But one of the issues with all of these new, weird flavors is how to market them to those that might not be as adventurous as others. For more on where we're headed with booze, we'll speak to Adam Rogers, senior correspondent at Wired. Well, I think there's sort of an intersection of two trends that are kind of unavoidable if you're interested in making booze that like people want to drink that tastes good and that's interesting and also dealing with a changing planet with climate changing what kinds of agricultural products will grow and where they will grow and how easy it is for them to grow because that's the basis for all of what people drink because you start with essentially you know fruits or grains or the kinds of stuff that you make beer or whiskey or brandy or scotch or weird stuff out of and 
the fact is that the places where those things can be grown and the kinds of things that can be grown are changing because the temperature gets hotter in some places or the water gets higher. There's less water to use to do farming. Distilling itself is a really energy intensive process because it requires heat because you have to heat up the stuff that you fermented to make it go through a still. So you want to use less of that if you can. And so distillers, a lot of them, because they care about the world and because they want to make good things that they can sell, are trying to find new ingredients that are more sustainable. So they're more sustainable to grow, more sustainable to find. Sometimes they're the things that you wouldn't use if you were making some other product. Like there are some distillers using the fruit that goes around the coffee bean, which is actually a pit, or using, you know, a kind of chili perhaps that you wouldn't use as much of because it comes from small farms, let's say, and turning those into the kinds of things that you can then ferment and then distill. And as a bonus, or I guess it depends on which way you look at this, because either the sustainability is the bonus or this is the bonus. The other thing is you get these new things to drink and to try that some people will really love or that are really interesting flavors. And a lot of these people are real artists. These distillers are real. They're artisans and they're craftspeople. They want to make something that's cool and new that nobody's tried or tasted before. So for your latest article, one of the distilleries you profiled was Empirical Spirits, and they're doing just that. They're using pasilla chilies to make certain spirits. They're even getting into the kind of seltzer market, I guess you can call it. And they have weird combinations like oolong tea, gooseberry, walnut wood. Tell us a little bit about them and some of the flavor profiles they're going for. Yeah, Empirical is really interesting. So they come out of, they're in Copenhagen, and they come out of the, a restaurant called Noma, which was one of the real kind of revolutionaries in uh, what's called for a while molecular gastronomy. And the idea there was to use all sorts of techniques from industrial food preparation and from even chemistry labs to turn into really interesting ways to prepare and combine foods and get new flavors. It's a very theatrical and fun experience. It's super expensive, of course. Very few people can afford to go to Noma. So a couple of folks who'd worked there in in their R&D, actually, in their research and development, formed this distilling company. And and what what they wanted to try to do was take some of that same spirit sorry for the pun, of using, you know, laboratory techniques like using something called a vacuum still, which uses vacuum and low pressure instead of using heat like a traditional still might in a, if you went to a you know, place like wild turkey or something to extract different flavors from the botanicals, from the kind of plants that would flavor what they made. And they're using things like even um, the pits of plums, the inside of, the, of a plum pit, which would be something that you would perhaps even throw away otherwise if you were going to make plum compote or something using that because there's still some starch in it, which you can convert to sugar and ferment and then distill and combine with all kinds of other strange flavors like uh, a marigold kombucha. So marigold is a kind of flower, of course. Kombucha is a fermentation done with bacteria and yeast. You take that and then distill that and mix that with what you made from the plum kernels. And you get these really interesting new kinds of flavors using even techniques like um, in Japan, one of the ways that they make the way that they make sake, for example, is using a fungus called koji, which turns the starch and rice into a sugar that yeast can digest and turn into alcohol. So they'll use koji instead of using a malting process like you'd use for a whiskey, let's say. All these different things combined make weird new flavors that you wouldn't expect in a distilled spirit. And then they mix all those things together and bottle them up and sell them. And it's hard to even know what to call some of these things. <laughs> You're used to the categories that you might see in a store like, oh, this is the vodka aisle and this is the gin aisle right. and this is the whiskey aisle. And these things don't even fit in those categories. You know, what would you call them? I'm not even really sure, but they're an interesting look at what people might be, the kind of people who like to drink alcohol, what they might be drinking in the future. So that's a very interesting thing that I would like you to expand on. You even noted in the article, the guys at Empirical say, you know, we're we're kind of bad salesmen. You know, it's tough to (laughs) describe to people how these weird flavors come across, what they might taste like. And, you know, an adventurous drinker might want to try anything, but how do you market this to the less adventurous drinker? How do you make these things break through? 
It's such an interesting question, isn't it? Because, of course, you're talking about two different things. You're talking about, as you say, whether somebody is really adventurous and is sort of novelty-seeking in the thing that they want to drink or eat or anything. It's true for any kind of food or drink, really, not just alcohol-containing. And then also, how do you sell it? How do you put a label on it? How do you get it past the government bureaucracies that label different kinds of spirits? How do you get it on right. to, into yeah. a store? Where do they shelve it at the BevMo? How do you make those kind of decisions? And so, you know, that becomes a tough question. Some of it, I think, is, well, what the peer, people at Empirical would say, and they were sort of joking about being bad salespeople, because, of course, they're well-known in the industry now. And they would probably say, well, you go to bars first, and you start at kind of the high end or the haute cuisine parts of so the really, like, the jumped-up expensive cocktail bars that are making a real um, that will pride themselves on having something that people haven't tried before and are able to have a conversation with you if you're sitting at the bar where the bartender knows how to explain and tell a story and do the theater that people who go to bars like to experience as much as they do the new taste. And then it begins to expand outward. I think there's that force that has to happen in kind of the business side. I also think, and this is a little bit more dystopian of me, I suppose, but I think these are going to be necessary. I think as as it becomes more and more difficult to acquire commodity grains because they use too much water and you have to plant other kinds of foods, as it becomes more and more difficult to channel certain kinds of fruits or plants or whatever into the world of distilling, people are going to have to be a little more adaptable, I guess, um, innovative. They're going to have to be disruptive. I don't know. What's the positive way of saying that climate change is going to change everything and it includes this part of the human experience? This is going to be the trend, as you mentioned, just people looking for different things to do, but it is a trend towards these bigger flavors, right? You know, everything's going to be coming at you in a different way. So, you know, in the last couple of minutes that we have here, then, you know, what was some of the best flavors that you did try from Empirical, things that you might see could be the future. Sure. Well, so just on, on one side, kind of on the more traditional side, they make a thing that's a lot like a whiskey. They start with a grain and then they ferment that and distill it and then age it in an, in an oak barrel. And that tasted very much like a really good bourbon to me, like you would, you know, in any, any, if you're a bourbon drinker. But it also, so it had some, all those same flavors, the kind of maltiness and the oak of the, of the wood and the kind of uh, dried fruit flavors almost um, and the, the, the taste of that, of that aged brown spirit. But they also were doing that with a koji fermentation like you would use in sake. So it had some kind of nutty umami like flavors to it that was really beautiful and that was sort of more traditional and then on the there's you know sort of on the on the other side of the spectrum there's the one you mentioned the one made from pasilla mije chilies and i don't usually like chili distillates i don't usually like that combination of a, of, of the heat that capsaicin heat from a chili in booze i thought this was delicious I've, I've actually they sent a sample of that and i've been um, enjoying that even beyond the tasting that i had with them over zoom I thought it was terrific. And you get the heat from the chilies at the beginning of it and the sort of smell of, of almost like a roasted pineapple smell in it. It's really lovely. It's yeah. a really lovely just thing to take sips of. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I, I am a, kind of one of those adventurous drinkers. I do like to try new flavor profiles. I'm very into the sake and sojus right now. I live in Los Angeles right next to Koreatown, so it's one of my favorite cuisines to go out and eat, and that's what you pair with that stuff. So I'm, I'm into all of that and always looking for these new flavors, uh, but just in general, just the new flavors, the sustainability that goes along with it is also really important. So looking forward to all of that. Adam Rogers, senior correspondent at Wired and author of Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern, also the author of Proof, The Science of Booze. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.